don't give it like a the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, walls, ground, atmospheres, and bodies in Palestine with Mariam Monalisa Garavi. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Mariam Monalisa Garavi, who is uh, an artist, a writer, a theorist, a writer of uh, the blog South South and uh, an editor at uh, The New Inquiry, and uh, we are talking in uh, Ramallah in Palestine. Um, hello Monalisa. Hello. Uh, so actually, yeah, as I just said, we're, we're here in Ramallah where you're, you're currently uh, living. Could you maybe tell us a little bit uh, what you're doing here as a sort of uh, introduction to our conversation and then we'll, we'll jump into the, our topic of discussion today. I've thought about living here for maybe um, the better half of a decade, maybe a full decade, and um, wasn't sure how that would happen. And I had the opportunity to um, apply for a postdoctoral Fulbright Fellowship and That's technically what brought me here. Um, so research, teaching, making art, and uh, sometimes all of those things at the same time. And um, yeah, that's what brought me. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, as, I, as I know well now for having uh, spent a few, a few days uh, uh, in your, in your um, daily life, um, You're also teaching at Birzeit University in Ramallah. Can you tell us a bit about that? That's right. So my year got divided up in an unexpected way. I ended up having the first half of the year um, not teaching and being able to devote myself to you know, making new work here. And I'm teaching two classes at Birzeit, um, which has been uh, a really unique experience I can tell you more about. But I'm teaching a film class in the Department of English Literature, which is loosely based on some of the research I did in, as a graduate student uh, for my dissertation. So it's visual narratives of crime. And um, in the architecture department, I'm teaching a course on boundaries, borders, and bodies, which is sort of an offshoot of other interests in research. Um, so most of my students are designers and urban planners who are there to have you know more time and focus and rigor with certain key texts so I've been very excited to teach practitioners and um, the whole experience has been so far I mean we're week we're in week two and you got the chance to come to my class and present your work the whole experience so far has really um, exceeded my expectations in terms of you know um, the passion that I see in some of the students and and um, I'm really excited for the next 15 weeks with them. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, today we will speak. Um, we will speak specifically about about Palestine, but not not just um, like uh, maybe taking advantage of the fact that uh, we we both um, come from elsewhere, from Palestine, to maybe draw parallels with uh, other situation, uh, and also um, speak where we are. Uh, speak as we are uh, as uh, outsiders who actually uh, uh, have experienced uh, the 
occupation in Palestine, but also I guess that's my that's my way of introducing the a little bit clumsily uh, to introduce the the topic of discussion of today, which which will start with things that you expected to find in Palestine when you when you arrive here, and as you've been telling me when we were preparing this conversation. Uh, and that I can also relate to myself is that you you always expect something somehow you you get a sort of confirmation a certain degree of confirmation of what you expect by by traveling i mean i think it's it's true for any any travel um i think it's it's post who was saying like when you, when we travel we always verify something i think there's a lot of truth in that but but also there's um uh the traveler needs to keep in mind to um to maybe allow surprise to to happen, and so I think maybe our conversation will will go slowly from from what what we would think uh, the Palestinian uh, situation and the Palestinian life under occupation would uh, would be like, and and then move to a more uh, a more uh, I mean uh, a subject that you've been you've been uh, starting to articulate while being here. So that's a very long introduction just to say that um, you, you've been working about um, the notion of walls in Brazil and, and you were, I think you were interested in comparing it with, uh, with the situation in, uh, in Palestine. So maybe could, could, you, could you introduce us a little bit to this, um, to this comparison? In the first part of what you said, it got me thinking about this idea that um, extended travel, particularly a longer stay when one travels... Um, helps you see beyond, you know, it, it, it washes away something about in front of your eyes. You, you have, an, you have a, a, a degree of insight in your discomfort in mm. this new place into something unaccustomed. And I think that when you have, when you add that experience um, to some place like Palestine, which has been um, in many ways a part of my life and, you know, maybe... Uh, all kinds of material and immaterial ways, there was this danger for me of not necessarily approaching it with the experience of the unaccustomed, of, of what do you do in a place like this that is spectacularized in a way, and also often the feeding ground for a lot of people's life work and projects, particularly people who are not of this place, and what does that mean um, in a, you know, in a one-year stay where I want to make myself available and of service to Palestinian students, but also be able to be changed by the experience. And that was something that was foremost on my mind, particularly in um, making new work, making work in video or installation or other things. And um, having worked in Gaza before in 2008 and, and, doing so, and, and coming to Gaza with a project, partaking in it, completing it, and then seeing it out there, um, I didn't want to repeat that kind of experience. I wanted to really have this place impact me in a way that I couldn't um, fathom. And that has certainly been true. And um, to the second part of your question about um, walls, I mean, that was, that was a project that was conceived when I, when I was a student, when I was a, a graduate student on a, on a fellowship in Brazil for a year. And again, you know, there's this relationship I have to Brazil that's both accustomed and unaccustomed and new and, and maybe um, familiar. Um, and while I was living there working on a completely different set of uh, research objectives, you know, 
I was at the Cinematheque in, in Cinemateca in Rio, um, looking at older conceptions of crime and visual narratives of crime in Brazilian cinema and doing this very lonely and uh, maybe maybe lonely is the wrong word for it, but very isolated work uh, with representations. I started noticing what was happening around me um, very close to the Dona Marta favela, also called in Brazil the, the community, the Dona Marta comunidade da Dona Marta. And I noticed that these uh, fairly... I wouldn't call them, you know, particularly well-made, but rudimentary walls, uh, three-feet walls, were going up around Dona Marta and, you know, started asking around, like, what's this about? And gradually it, it became uh, a topic of discussion among particularly the Brazilian elite. Um, the walls were featured on the covers of Istoé and Veja, which are equivalents of, you know, big weeklies in the United States like Newsweek, um, quite center right, if I can say that, and the walls were the the argument for the walls as a form of eco security, as a form of securitizing the Atlantic forest from um, the expansion of the black and the poor, were was taken hook, line, and sinker from the government. I mean, it was really sold through the media as this is this is the solution we've all been looking for. And so I started looking at this further, did a little bit of field work in the area, not, not particularly in an in a academic or scholarly way, but, but started taking notes and interviewing some of the, the residents of Dona Mata, which, which was seen as, a, as an incubation, right? And this is a really offensive idea because it, it's real, but was seen as a laboratory for what could happen at about you know, 19 other favelas. And so this, of course, this whole enterprise reminded me of the, the Israeli security wall uh, or apartheid wall, depending on who one's asking. And the 2002 um, opinion on that wall and in all the discussions and writings and, and work and, and visualizations of that wall and got me thinking about not so much the wall in and of itself, but the demands of the security project and and what is what what is the security project from the point of view of the state and how is it being sold and if one has an eco-security argument on the one hand and a kind of political security argument in in the israeli palestinian israeli case then what if we were to like look at that and look at that not only historically but even etymologically um i often tell people i'm etymologically obsessed and 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 looking at the very the origins and the provenance of of these security projects so from there I had this. I had this. You know, I started amassing, amassing the, this research, and ended up going back to the U.S. and working with uh, my the person who ended up being my dissertation advisor, John Hamilton, who is a, is a scholar of medieval and classical, and I would say even ancient um, philosophy and and political theory, but but likes to think that we shouldn't let political scientists and people in international relations have all the fun. That we really should look at this from a uh, the perspective of comparative philology of looking at the way, for example, the concept of security has has been bequeathed to us from, um, you know, ancient thought, and so I started tracing this with him in in a in the in the purview or the realm of theories of security. And that's when it got really interesting because on the one hand, I had this, you know, real life encounters with the walls, real life encounters with containment, um, 
discussions or, or conceptions of security from the state itself and, and like how the state explained this wall projects to itself and to the inhabitants. Um, and, and also then what, what I was able to get with, with John Hamilton that I maybe couldn't get on my own was this, uh, this legacy from Roman law, um, canonical codes and so on that really harkens back to everything from the Stoics to Seneca, um, all the way to our, you know, our contemporary with, with Carl Schmitt and others and, and conceptions of who is in, who is out, outside of these boundaries and, and borders. And so that got really interesting for me. And then I followed this for a while and thought, well, doesn't this deserve its own um, on-the-ground fieldwork in Palestine, um, in addition to the kind of, you know, uh, etymological rigor that one can do, you know, from from a distance. So that brought me here. But as I as I mentioned to you before, I knew in a way what I was looking for. I have I have a I have a theorem. I have there's something at work in in the contradiction of the state that I'm interested in looking at. How the wall is uh, is an emblem of sovereignty. How the state needs the wall to say look, I am a sovereign, and, and there's always this, um, I guess you could say, a dictic moment when, when you point with your index finger at something that's visual and say, there, it's a, it's a dictic uh, reality. And I thought, okay, well, I'm, you know, I, I, this is familiar to me now. Like, I know what I'm looking for. I know, I know the arguments at work. I just have to do it. I just have, I just have to complete it. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you, I think you you the, you use the sentence "How the wall explain itself," and I, th I think that was very very interesting in how, for example, that may be an aspect um, that I forget in my own work quite often. To the point, I'm always interested in this relationship with bodies and how a wall quite simply uh, uh, split a, a milieu into two and and have bodies on both sides of of the and prevent prevent the porosity of it. Uh, so sometimes it's even uh, almost a, a, a quasi-reactionary vision of the wall. But uh, uh, it's true that in the case in the case of Palestine uh, and maybe in the case of Brazil too, there there is a sort of spe spectacle uh, from from the state because uh, quite quite simply, I mean, there's part of the wall of the apartheid wall that is actually not a wall. That is a sort of uh, a sort of uh, no no man zone where with like barbed wire but somehow there's a transparency and it quite doesn't have this spectacularity that is actually very much embraced by the state of Israel when they when they designed that and I think it relates to what you were saying about security like sec security is not so much the the factual security of of not having anything happening it's 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 very much um, providing the conditions that makes you feel that you're you're within a, a secured uh, uh, place, right? It's not. It's mm -hmm. uh, we we always look at faults of security retrospectively, but when we actually experience it, it's all about it's all about a, a sort of spectacles that the walls provide. So I, I think we we're gonna we will go back to the question of bodies later because that's something you're very interested in as well. But uh, but uh, maybe uh, could you could you address this spectacular spectacularity for for a little bit? I'm really glad that you brought up the porousness of the wall and it's sort of uh, those exceptional moments. In Brazil, I remember just in the very few visits that I, I made to Dona Marta, 
people would regularly jump the wall. Like it wasn't, it was, it wasn't really a big deal to hike a ladder and go and pick mm. some fruit and come back to your house, right? So there was this ridiculousness to the the porosity of the wall that was very obvious to everyone involved. But when you look at it from the point of view of you know um, the wall as seen as a political project, one doesn't really take that into account. The same thing is true of Israel. There's countless examples of. Um, not just you know wall jumping mm-hmm. um, in popular movies and things like that that one could see, but even the seam zones, the parts of the wall that are um, are otherwise known as buffer zones that are divide or divide or intrude in Palestinian communities and on formally Palestinian territory in such a way that there's this there's this uncanny buffer created between them and you know 1948 or Israel, um, but. What I can say about that is, you know, I think one counter argument to all this is, well, you know, there's many other ways that Israel inhibits mobility that I've heard the argument that if, if this area, if, if the Palestinian territories were a house, Palestinians get a few rooms and Israel gets the highways. And there's and, and there's 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 many, maybe not infinite, but near infinite examples of of the kind of. Um, monstrous oppression that Palestinians uh, experience on in the everyday. The reason I like the I like thinking about the wall and its spectacularity is because I think the state needs you to see it. I think sometimes we can get, um, as as you mentioned too, involved in our own uh, default understanding of a wall as well. Walls are taboo. Walls are people think of the Berlin Wall and all these other count all these other. Um, contrapuntal examples but really the state needs you to see it just like that porosity of the Brazilian wall is a daily reality and 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 the inhabitants of Donamata can laugh at it that porosity it still needs to be there it serves this this function of sovereignty my in my entrance into all of this is to say well the wall to me is the utmost example of um, a real contradiction in the state's own security project and what I mean by that is if security is a concept in 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 comparative philology, uh, is is the idea of being without care. Um, so security is literally sine cura, without care. You're without care when you're secure because something is securing you. Um, you and I have talked about how the ground secures us, so we can be careless as we walk in our instability. In our in our free falling footsteps, we're insecure at the level of um, community security because well we're without care. The police care for us and secure us, and so on and so on. And there's there's you know levels of this. Perhaps the the ultimate level being the state and the, the boundaries, the borders of the state. Um, the reason I thought walls were really interesting is particularly in the Israeli case, where you don't just have a nation, a sort of a, a contiguous country like Brazil, the Republic of Brazil. Um, it's particularly interesting because of this idea of the wall as, an, as a, an annexing force. And I started looking at this closer, like, well, what does it really mean to annex? I'm used to thinking of annexation as a cutting Israel has a you know you can almost see the headlines in your head. Israel has annexed more territory, and you know when I got to uh, when I got here in August of 2014, already something like 1,400 dunams of land were newly annexed, you know, um, in one go. So I started thinking about this, and, and annex, annexation also has a really interesting philological history, and in that anektere is to yoke together. 
So rather than cutting away, the real um, conceptual reality of annexation is a yoking together. And I thought, well, isn't this perfect? Because in annexing uh, historic Palestine through this sovereign-making, spectacular wall, um, Israel is really contradicting its own security project in that it's yoking itself even closer to the territories with which it's responsible. In other words, if the Fourth Geneva Conventions tells us that Israel is responsible for its occupied territory and the wall is a... Um, pushes that away and says, no, we actually want to create an, an even even less contiguity and even more um, artificial separation and boundaries, the wall itself actually lies on that contradiction because it yokes it together to, it, to, the, to the territories for which it's responsible. And just on that level, on the level of, you know, to securitize Israel by creating the wall and then to annex more Palestinian territory and yoke them together, I found that profoundly um, interesting. And, and, it, and it, gave me, it gave me more tools with which to look at something that on its own, I thought, yeah, well, of course it's creating walls. Of course it, of course it wants you to know that it's sovereign. Um, and, and that's why I wanted to pursue it rather than to say, well, well, there's, there's many other ways that Israel inculcates itself in the everyday lives and, and, and the, in the oppression of the everyday life of the average Palestinian. That this wall tends to centralize so much of the contradictions of its security project. Mm -hmm. And so, so far, the way you've been talking about that, uh, you, you, you were saying, uh, that's what I wanted, that's why. So you're, you're talking from the tense before you uh, started to live in Palestine. And and uh, because precisely you let yourself open to the surprise of the of the reality somehow, um, you experience another surface that we are quite ubiquitous surface, uh, even more so than the surface of our of our walls. Ubiquitous walls uh, is a surface of the ground, which I think is something that could not be really sought from. The outside, so it needed a sort of uh, empirical experience uh, uh, here, and um, I guess I'm gonna I'm gonna orient the way you're gonna you're gonna present that, which actually materialized through a, a series of uh, photos that you've been doing. But could you could you maybe explain that to us, starting from this um, from this uh, triggering event that is the Lisbon earthquake in uh, 18th century, as you've been uh, as you've been telling me when we were preparing this conversation? Sure. Um, as I said, when I got here, it was uh, a few months ago. It was at the end of the, the invasion, the war in Gaza, the, the last war in Gaza. And I remember living through that summer in the same kind of unspeakable horror as a lot of other people I knew and watching... Um, you know, watching Gaza bombed for the third, fourth time en masse in my, in my memory, in my living memory. And I remember particularly the depressions in the earth where um, a particular area would get bombed again or the scene of a bombing would be bombed again or a cemetery would be bombed. And, and this kind of, um, the ground is the site of endless cycles of mortality Um, and that, that of course was nothing new, but there was something particular about that, about the summer of 2014 that 
made me feel quite mute and unable to really say or write or offer anything other than my own horror. And I got here then with the project of the walls and sort of set it aside and thought, okay, I need to really leave myself open to be surprised and, and, and have my own expectations betrayed in some way. And um, very much by chance, just, you know, with an iPhone in hand, started, you know, in my daily walks in Ramallah, I started noticing the mutability of the ground and the way that both the ground itself and the unevenness of the ground called my attention and also the kinds of objects I would find on it. Um, at first, I didn't really, you know, make too much of it. I thought, particularly of the objects, I just thought, well, there's a different relationship to trash in this city. But the more, the more I would go on these walks, or even even not deliberately, but just go from point A to point B, I would see um, the variations of the ground, and it started. It, it led me to think further about um, ground as a as a as a as a securitizing concept, right? And Somehow, in between these, this experience of the few months of living here, all of those things that I had experienced conceptually somehow started coming back in a real concretized way. And um, the pictures started accumulating in a more deliberate way. I thought, well, okay, maybe there's something to this. And I went back to John's work. And, and by that time, in, in 2013, he'd, already, he'd published uh, the book Security, which in some ways had come out of our class of theories of security and I started reading it with a lot of relish and there were um, there were excerpts of Voltaire's poem on the Lisbon disaster and by complete coincidence I happened to be going to Lisbon over the break, over the winter break and so it got me thinking a little bit more um, deliberately about what the 1755 Lisbon earthquake meant for European thought on security and the idea of philosophical groundedness that really became what we know it to be now after that earthquake. In other words, if um, groundedness had really existed conceptually, the Lisbon earthquake and the demolishing of that city, the near total demolishing of that city, um, made that philosophical concept concrete. And I started looking at that further. I went to Lisbon and thought, well, maybe I can. Maybe maybe I'm just finding what I'm looking for. Maybe the transience and mutability and vulnerability of the ground that I'm experiencing in Palestine, which contradicts my own kind of feelings about the ground as a you know, I don't know, a default mode. Maybe I'm just finding what I'm what I want to look for. Maybe in Lisbon I'll find the same thing. Maybe I'll find that transient ground visible in front of my eyes. And that didn't happen at all. I. I, you know, I found smooth surfaces. I didn't find um, any, nothing really particularly called my attention. And so I just thought, okay, I need to learn more about the 1755 earthquake, which, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure is not, you know, new to, to, to anyone really, but the, the profound philosophical shift that happened at, at that earthquake moved me because it began from the earth and it wasn't in reverse. It wasn't a kind of, you know, it it was a it was a sea change, pardon the pun, that happened from the point of view of an unexplained and total disaster that ended up creating um, a real break in, in European thought, a, a break from the ideas of who are we vis-a-vis -a, -vis a cosmic reality and a divine order 
um, if God is unknowable and unreadable to us as godly people, what do we do when, when God is careless, when God is without care? The, the, the earth which we, which, which we so take for granted has literally uh, you know, shifted and turned our city and our lives upside down. And that break, that, um, you know, in, in every sense of the word, that, that break was, was so profound and so total and, and so felt from, from, you know, the nearly 100,000 people who perished in, in that earthquake and its aftermath to, you know, to Voltaire's uh, conversion to atheism and to Kant's um, break with you know his own conceptions of divine order and divine restoration to well actually we need to find scientific explanations and um, for this disaster and the birth of seismology I found that to be um, perhaps I found that to be a door well what if what if this earthquake can be uh, a moment of of analogy a moment of uh, a, a, some kind of fountain to the reality and contemporary that I'm living in that even if things are as bleak and horrible as they are what if what if there is something transient and vulnerable and mutable are, about our own situation and about our own ground mm-hmm. and so go, go I mean we, we're really gonna address keep addressing this notion of the of the ground as, a, as being a fundamental in the way um, in the way we can see it both, uh, I would say, physically and politically, and maybe uh, I'm, uh, maybe try to avoid the symbolism of it, but it, it might not be easy. I mean, I, the, the way I, I'm thinking of the ground is a, is a sort of surface to which everything tends to go, to go to, to every tend to, to be attracted by. And I think your photos show that very well because there's many objects on the ground that, that seems to have been like... Uh, attracted by uh, some kind of unknown force, but it's actually not an unknown force, it's called gravity. But there is a sort of entropy like that of everything needs to go back to the ground and the ground has a sort of surface of a surface of collusion between between uh, gravity and, and the force, the physical force of resistance of the ground. And so maybe that uh, uh, I think your, your work around the earthquake and everything uh, tackles this idea of what what happens when gra- when gravity becomes stronger than the than the force that 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 keeps us keep our bodies uh, on the ground and and when there is a fault in the ground and um, I, w- I was thinking while you were talking that uh, when you were talking about the streets of Lisbon as being very smooth and I think the the smoothness of the ground is um, is highly political for many reasons I think but both in terms of how it uh, forces us to relate to our bodies, but also when you think about it, uh, when we think of smooth ground, we, we we might think of asphalt, for example, and and that's that might be a partial reading of the invention of asphalt because I mean uh, asphalt is maybe more convenient for vehicles and everything, but I know that part of it, uh, part of the asphaltization of Paris, for example, was was very much to replace the, the old cobblestones that were used for barricades. So there is something about creating barricade with the ground that's also very interesting in the way that you, you take this sort of flatness of things and you start creating a sort of, uh, a sort of um, what I like to call in, in the relation to barricades, an, an, abject, an abject assemblage of things, like a very 
very ugly, not well constructed. Uh, so somehow it's like when when you start when you start te- transforming the ground like that, I think there is a sort of very strong political um, uh, gesture that that kind of operates and and I mean political not in a not in necessarily in the barricade way like not in a sort of moralistic way like it's good or it's bad but just like some something strong happen when it, when uh, when there's such an operation I don't know, I don't know if yeah you to... I mean that's that's a really good point in that that smoothness that you're you're calling political it's a it's a it's a stability it's a mm-hmm. restabilizing of the it's ground. a security as you were describing right. it was uh, when we walk like uh, we take it for granted mm. that of course the next step in our unstable step is going to catch us and that entropy which you've helped me think through a lot more that entropy actually is a force that can help securitize us whereas you know the people uh, you know the ideas and the people that I'm more attracted to are um, interested in a vital instability and that is why I think there's something so mm, fertile to the idea of uh, a lack of smoothness on the ground and the entropy that is bringing down these objects and is placing them in my path and our path is actually a reminder, if nothing else. It's, it's more than a visual reminder. I mean, sometimes you have to step around them here. Um, but the, the, the instability in my path, for example, from my home to Manada, the center of Ramallah, is, you know, your, your, my eyes are almost always glued to the ground because I don't know if the next step is going to catch me. And, and the, lack of, the lack of smoothness and, and, and asphalt actually um, creates a, a real reminder of my own mortal and vital instability. And I think that project is political. And I think um, it's political in the sense of, uh, I, I'm going to use another word that maybe perhaps doesn't mean what it means, which is resistance. And that in, in the resistance of that smoothness and in one's attraction toward instability, you can f- there's another security project that counters the security project of the state. And that, you know, if the state wants us to be, and of course I say state, you know, as a, as a conceptually the state with a capital S and, and the state um, including perhaps the privatized state of, of airport security scanners and so on. But we, we want to we find that um, complete and whole security in that, you know, we want to prevent disasters before they occur. And, and the lead up to all these forms of little and large paranoias in our societies that, and, and, and often technology is a savior or as, an, as a way to alleviate those, those paranoias. And that is not about vital instability. That is actually about um, thinking, um, being on the path of thinking that we might actually prevent, we might be able to prevent our own desecuritizing, that we might be able to prevent um, or, or forego the lack of, uh, the lack of care that um, human mortality finds itself in. I like vital instability. I like the project of resistance, and I don't mean resistance in the sense of like armed resistance necessarily, but the project of a constant reminder that we live in instability and that there is something securitizing about that, that we might approach the question of care, of kura, in a different way than the, our default way. I find something very um, uh, productive in that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we've been talking about walls, we've been talking about uh, ground, and there's a third, um, 
so a third element that I'd like to discuss with you, uh, which is not a surface this time, um, but it's a notion of atmosphere. And um, you you gave a presentation yesterday at uh, Riwak uh, in Ramallah uh, about about the various uh, artistic work you've been doing, and one of them uh, one of them was very much about this notion of atmosphere. Even though I don't I don't I don't I don't think you say the word, so I don't know if you're interested in that word per se. But uh, your work is called uh, "Contain, Contain," and um, and it talk it addresses the suffocation that you've been experiencing since you live in Palestine. I mean, you've been telling me that at a at a uh, personal level, uh, and um, I don't know. It brought back an entire an entire uh, uh, re- re- reference to me about colonialism, and uh, in particular, Franz Fanon's uh, concept of combat breathing. In, in how he describes how precisely the colonization does not merely uh, apply itself on the ground, on the land, or almost the land on, on the map, like the, 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 the sort of expansionist materialization of, of, of the map, uh, and the idea of naming, naming things to appropriate them. They, it's, not, it's not the only thing, is that the, the, the atmosphere is colonized and... Uh, I, um, I think this this idea of suffocation definitely relates to that, and I mean, obviously, we can also think of the of the recent uh, uh, movements in the U.S. Uh, and their and their we can breathe uh, to to use uh, Eric Eric Garner's uh, last words before he was killed by a police officer, uh, saying, "I can breathe, I can breathe." Um, this notion of breathing and this notion of atmosphere. Uh, seems to intervene within your work, I mean, in particular in that piece. Maybe could you describe it for us to begin with? Sure. Um, I think the Fanon uh, reference is really apt in that it also draws attention to the body. And when I first got here, um, speaking of unexpected realities, I, I you know, someone, someone described Ramallah to me as uh, an observatory for meteorological phenomena, which I thought was a really apt way to put it. We we're, we sort of sit high and and have a really beautiful sunsets and morning fog, and you get to see the atmosphere around you change. Um, and the air here is quite quite remarkably clean, considering. Um, and and yet and yet I started uh, experiencing. I wouldn't necessarily call them panic attacks, but these kind of like gasping moments where I would be gasping for air, and I didn't really talked to anyone about them for a while um, and thought this must be like, the stress of a move, this must be um, you know, experiencing on, on some level, on a limited level, the occupation and, and um, maybe secondhand, um, secondhand uh, experience of the trauma that Palestinians face as well. And it kind of started getting worse and it was this really suffocating feeling that I'd never felt before and um, that I would now describe as a somatic experience and that it came from my body. And meanwhile, I was also searching for uh, a, new, a new video project and what I wanted to do here and had remembered this 1979 film experiment by the Brazilian artist Elio Uchisica where he is using a parangolé, a kind of uh, self-made container over his head, a costume, what he would probably call a body event. And in being inside this container, he would improvise a spontaneous movement. So it's about four minutes without a cut 
filmed by his friend, uh, the Brazilian filmmaker Ivan Cardoso, who's still alive, of him uh, just doing this performance with his body, with the parangole on top of on top of his body. Uh, just maybe to describe to the listeners, because when you say container, that uh, uh, that may be a little bit misleading in the fact that. It's it's um, it's. I mean, I'm sorry that really kills the poetry of the object, but it's basically a gigantic plastic bag, right? Yes. So you you do see the the, the bag the bag uh, volume changing based on the 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 unbreathing of the of the person in it. Containment is absolutely misleading. It um, it's a it's a plastic material that was you know probably perhaps a piece of you know garbage bag or transparent plastic bag of some kind that he also inscribes with words around it although I when I make my remake I don't copy that gesture and that he sort of made almost like a costume that fits his body and moves and undulates with his body as he does so it it both contains him and also allows him a kind of autonomous free body experience and that he's inside this uh, this thin plastic membrane but it moves with his body and in in, in one can't really say that it's inhibiting him in some way and it's transparent and I you know I really like this uh, relationship that's set up between you know these contradictions of inside the parangole outside the parangole um, the head and feet because his feet are moving and he's actually wearing samba pants from uh, I think it's Mangueiras uh, the Mangueira samba group so he's actually wearing a costume that that is it references the samba movement and his feet are moving in this like three time movement of samba and they're very free and yet his upper body and torso are a little bit more contained inside this material and I found those contradictions and those um, dyads set up by Uh, by his performance to be really compelling, but had set it aside and hadn't really thought about it until I had what I just described to you as this psychosomatic uh, suffocation that I was experiencing in Ramallah. And so I decided that one way to maybe explore this further was... I'm sorry, but in his case, it was uh, 79 is still very much during the Brazilian dictatorship. That's right. I think there was a clear stance on his end I mean, as you were explaining. Uh, That's right. To... It's 1979 is still very much during the Brazilian military regimes that are successive until 18 until 1984, and I should say that the parangole has a real um, political resonance for uh, for Oichisika. He uh, he would have dwellers of Mangueira and other communities in the slums of, of Rio wear or use these costumes as performative elements for the work, which was which was quite novel and unheard of uh, for the time. And there was this releasing of the body and allowing for the emergence of the body's autonomy in wearing these, you know, body events. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't, you know, it's it wasn't performance in the sense of, of we might think of a performance as staged with an audience and a presentation, but in fact the, there's really no line between participation and and viewership and I found that to be I've always found his work to be extremely compelling but even more so when I started thinking about um, you know putting my own body on the line and in, 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 in being here and so I thought one way of exploring this was to reenact and to remake this one shot uh, single shot four minute experiment and I recruited this performer Um, one of the only people that I shared my experience of suffocation with, uh, a 21-year-old um, Palestinian man from Jerusalem, 
who shared with me some of the, his own feelings of suffocation here and, and, and said that even at the level of, of the, the somatic experience I was describing of like finding myself in my house gasping for air, that that actually echoed his own experience. And when I described this to him, I was expecting him to hear, well, why would I, why would I care about, you know, this, this, this costume and this 1979 film experiment. And, and, and he actually contradicted that completely and said, no, this is, I, want, I want to feel what Oichisika was feeling, and I wonder what it would be like to feel that now in, this, in, in my historical reality. And I think that, you know, um, not to sound, you know, maybe worn out, but I, but I think that in some sense art gets to let us do that, is to experience our reality in a historic as a historical reality and actually be able to to explore it in that way and for me this film was very much that i don't mean historical in the sense of like just geological or political history but even myself and my own body is a part of that um reality so i recruited a palestinian choreographer who's who's quite um good her name is samar haddad king and we had this idea of, she had an idea at first of drawing Oichisika's movements because she's done this kind of work where you can draw out a spontaneous movement and then remake it and realize that it was so complicated that um, the movements were so quick and so, you know, spontaneous that it would just, it would just be an endless process to try to do this over the course of four minutes. So we, we, we experimented for a while and finally, you know, we just, she, she actually inscribed the movements gesture for gesture. If he takes a step to the left, she writes step to the left and so on. So imagine doing this for four minutes and it ended up being, I can't tell you how many pages of material, but um, she, she had our, our performer memorize this movements and we had several uh, rehearsals here. I should say in your mentioning of atmosphere that we first rehearsed this in the Sariyat of Ramallah which is uh, the scout, so it's this open-air area and athletic center and community center that is a really vibrant center in Palestinian life in Ramallah. And we asked permission to film there, but Ramallah was so unpredictable in the fall season that we would get um, these meteorological effects that would contradict anything we were expecting. So all of a sudden the sky would open up and my, my shirtless performer would get rained on or my camera would get rained out. So we finally decided to do it on a stage. And so we did this gesture for gesture, step for step um, movement. And for me, I mean, there were, at the conceptual level, I like the idea that a reenactment or a remake uh, or a copy in scare quotes might... Uh, change the reality or the chemistry of its original that you once you see these two channels side by side that um, the, there's something uh, alchemically changed about the original that was being remade I, I personally just from just from a level of you know I guess artistic expansion really like that idea and really wanted to explore it but um, uh, you know I, I I guess it's up to the viewers to see to see how this experience of, you know, containment or release of, of dependence and autonomy might be, might be worked out in this film. Mm -hmm. Well, you were talking about drawings a little bit earlier, and I, right at this moment, I was thinking that we we almost would need a drawing for, to illustrate this conversation about uh, walls, uh, ground, atmospheres, and bodies in Palestine. That. At least, uh, thank you very much, Mona Lisa, for taking the, the time to talk to me uh, uh, this morning. Thank you. Shukran, thank you. Mm.